Okay, we had a request to dedicate this year f- to, uh, for the uh, the memory of Shalom ben Yamna, so I'd like to do that right now. Uh, okay, everyone, nice to see you. It feels kind of funny to be speaking in English here, but I'm going to do it anyway because uh, it's better than subjecting you to my tortured Hebrew. Um, it's nice to see you all. My name is David Foreman. Uh, I arrived recently from the uh, from the States, and it's a delight to be here. Um, just a, a quick word for those of you who are interested in, in seeing more of this kind of material. Obviously, you have the, the resources here at the Gush. Um, on the Internet, uh, sort of video renditions of, of my material are available, which are really designed for teachers to use in school. I don't know how many. They're really designed for everybody, but uh, there's many teachers using them in school. So I want to invite you to use it either as an adult ed person or um, just as a, as, a, as a teacher with your kids. The site to go to is alephbeta.org. That's A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A. Dot O-R-G. Again, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A, alephbeta.org. And the, the style of the shiurim are, you don't see me, it's, uh, it's sort of like Khan Academy, uh, but you'll get a chance to take a look online. What we're going to talk about today um, is some material which I've been working on recently over the last uh, six months or so. Um, I'm working on a book which includes this material, um, but um, I'm, it, it's a... It's a pleasure to be able to share it with you. So let me begin with this. When we stand back and look at the large picture of Breshid and Shmot, it seems to me that, first of all, can you hear? I don't know if you can hear in the back. Can you hear me in the back? Yes? You're good? A little louder? I don't know if this gets any louder. Is this better? Okay. I'll try and thank you. I'll try and say as close as I can to the microphone. If this doesn't work, I'll just scream. <laughs> okay. So uh, as I was saying, when you look at Breshid and Shmot, and um, instead of looking at them just pasuk by pasuk, we look at them as a whole. It strikes me that there's a, a, a difficulty which I want to touch base with you about, and this year will only deal with this difficulty to some extent. Uh, but I think it's the beginning of dealing with the difficulty. The difficulty is that there seems to be a kind of disconnect between these two books. And let me explain what I mean by a disconnect between these two books. So let's say you're reading Sefer Breshit. So you're paying attention to all the events in Sefer Breshit. You're paying a lot of attention to the story of Avram. You're paying a tremendous amount of attention as you go through the second half of the book to the saga of Yosef and his brothers. All of the details, you don't have a, the, among all the stories in Tanakh, the story of Yosef is, is elucidated in, in very, very great detail. We get a tremendous amount of detail. We go through all of that, and you have a tremendous amount of, of information at your disposal about all the avot, all the imaot, and you then transition into Sefer Shemot, and it almost seems like nothing that you read is of any relevance anymore. Like, why did I even bother? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not hearing about Avram anymore. I'm not hearing about Yitzchak anymore. I'm not hearing about Yaakov anymore. Yosef and his brothers are disposed of in one sentence, Vayamat Yosef v'cholatarahu, and then we're on to other things, and the new things don't seem to have very much to do with the old things. Um, the Jews are enslaved, 
in short order, murder is the order of the day. And it just seems like nothing that you read about, and Brashid has sort of prepared you for this. And you can see the same thing if you imagine yourself studying Shemot. Yeah, you, you begin to study Shemot, and, and you want to look back and Brashid to get some context. And again, as you look in Brashid, it just doesn't seem like you have any context. As, as a matter of fact, if anything, as you look at Brashid, if you didn't know what was going to happen in Shemot, if you were going through Chumash for the very first time and you had finished Sefer Breshit, and you had to prognosticate, and you had to figure out, you know, predict where do you think things are going to go in Sefer Shemot, you'd say, you know, things are going pretty well. Um, Yosef and has, has settled his brothers into the land of Mitzrayim. Uh, the king himself has told them to take the best of the land. Um, they're, you know, relatives of royalty. Things seem to be going pretty well. Things be going on the up and up. There's a famine that strikes everyone, but there's enough food for the Jews. And then again, as you hit Sefer Shemot, it all falls apart. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of, of preparation for this. How is it that the books stick together? How is it that they fit together? I want to argue that they really do fit together. Uh, they fit together in a very, very profound and fascinating way. And part of what I want to talk about today is, is to some extent how that's so. I want to talk to you about it in the context of Korban Pesach. Um, but in order to understand, in order to understand that, to look at the Korban Pesach, um, I want to point out just for a moment how disconnected the Parsha of Korban Pesach itself kind of feels. Um, Let's go to uh, go to Shemot Yudbet with me for just a moment, which is where we have the the first parsha of Carbon Pesach. As you know, the Torah as a whole is composed of basically two kinds of narr- two kinds of text. We have laws, halachot, and we have stories. Generally speaking, each of these things have their own neighborhood, right? If I asked you Sefer Breshit, mostly laws or mostly stories? Mostly stories. Sefer Vayikra, mostly laws or mostly stories? You tell me mostly laws. Sefer Shmot, you'd say, well, the first half is mostly stories, the second half is mostly laws. And that works generally for the first three books of the Torah, with one exception, and that exception is actually Carbon Pesach. Carbon Pesach is a strange digression in the middle of the greatest story ever told. Right? The greatest story ever told, the story of the Exodus. You know it's a great story. Hollywood has made a lot of money telling this story in many different versions. And it's a great story. But notice that Hollywood changes the way the story is told. In any of the Hollywood renditions of, 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 of Yitziat Mitzrayim, from the Ten Commandments to the Prince of Egypt, you never have Carbon Pesach, right, you know, interrupting everything right at the, at the great climactic moment. It just doesn't happen. And just to show you how climactic that moment is, right, take a look with me. You know, what's happening when you have the Parsha of Carbon Pesach? It's the first extended section of Halacha that interrupts a story section and it does, doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. What's happening? What's happening is the ninth plague has descended upon Egypt. And at that point, Paro is ready to let the Jews go. And he really just has one 
request. He says, I'm ready, I'm ready to let everyone go. The only thing I ask is that you leave your cattle behind. Right? He's looking for a way to save face. Leave your cattle behind. If you were Moshe, what would you do? What would you do if you were in this situation? 400 years of slavery can come to an end right now. Right? The only cost is leave your cattle here. Everyone can go. Most of us would take that deal. Moshe doesn't take the deal. Moshe says, Para, I'm really glad you mentioned the cattle because actually not only are we going to take the cattle, but you're going to actually give us all the cattle. You see, we have no idea what we're supposed to sacrifice to Hashem until we go. You know, it could be he wants hippopotamuses, flamingo, right? You know, it could be anything. So you have to give us the whole national zoo, and and that's how we're going to go. Paro, understandably, is enraged. He tells Moshe to leave. I don't want to even see your face again. Moshe says, Kain dibarta, as you say, lo osif od rot panecha, I will never see your face again. And this is it. Now this is a great standoff because at this point these men, who have previously been negotiating, have now sworn that neither is going to see each other again. So you know that we're getting to a climax. Something has to give. At that moment, Moshe turns around and leaves the palace in anger, never to see Paro again. And at that point... God appears to him as he's leaving. And that brings us to the beginning of Shemot Yud Aleph. Od nega achad aviel para. One more plague there's going to be. I mean, this is very dramatic. And then they're going to let you go. Moshe turns around, tells it to Paro, there's going to be one more plague. Your firstborn are going to die this night. You're going to come back to me and you're going to beg me to leave. And he leaves Paro, never to return. Now, if you were writing this book, if you were the author, what would happen next? I mean, you know what happens next, right? There is a tenth plague. You would imagine the next thing to happen, we're going to see the tenth plague. Now, of course, you need to say that the Jews are going, we need some preparation for this. We need to understand that the Jews have to do something in order for them to be immune to the effects of the plague. So, if we had a pasuk or, to, a pasuk or so that explained that the Jews have to uh, have to shecht the carbon pesach on their way out, put the blood on the doors. I would understand that, but look what we have in Parak Yud Bet. Parak Yud Bet begins, "Vayom Rashem Al Moshe, the Alaron Beretz Mitzrayim Leimor, Hachodesh Hazel Lachem Rosh Chadashim, Rishon Hu Lachodshei Ashana." Parak Yud Bet begins with a calendrical note, right? A little detail about the calendar. By the way, most people start counting their months in a certain way. You really should start counting your months here. Why is that important? No one really knows. But then we go on. We go on to a long and dizzying list of the halachot of Karban Pesach. And as you go through this list, and I just want to go through it quickly with you, just so we know what's here. As you go through this list, it's almost like as the reader, you can't stop sort of scratching your head and saying to yourself, why do I need to hear about any of this now? This it just seems to be an unconscionable um, interjection, interruption in the middle of this story. And by the end of it, it's so complicated, all these laws, that you think to yourself, you're not even sure what happened, you know, where you were up to in the story. You could be forgiven for just closing the book and getting lost and not even continuing. And the question is, why does the Torah do this? How do we understand this? Now, by the way, this is not a question which occurs to that many of us, unfortunately. And I think the reason is why, because we're yeshiva educated. 
So for yeshiva educated, we're used to studying halacha. We say, oh good, finally we have some halacha to study. We open up Masech Psachim and we read and we look at you know all the halachot and we're right at home. But that's all very nice from the standpoint of halachic drash, but it doesn't do anything for us from the standpoint of pshutosh mikra. In other words, in pshat, what's this doing here? The Torah has to make sense at all the levels. It can't just make sense at the level of halachic drash. In pshat, what are these laws doing here? How, what are they doing in the middle of this story? Here are the laws. Everybody has to take themselves a lamb. And if the house is too small to, in, con, to consume a lamb, now, as we go through this, by the way, I just want to point out, um, let me point out with you some of the difficulties as you read this. One difficulty is just what are, what are all these laws doing here? But in addition to the difficulty with the fact that these detailed laws are here, there's another level, level of difficulty that I want to point out to you, and it's a language difficulty. If you listen to the language, the language seems tortured in, in many respects. It just doesn't seem like the normal way you would express these things in Hebrew or in biblical Hebrew. Let me give you an example of, of the kind of thing I'm talking about as we go through this. If the house is too small to entirely consume a sheep, now, it's someone like to explain to me what that means. If the house is too small to entirely consume a sheep, then okay, so that I can understand, then you and your neighbor together should do what? What do you think that means? Okay, so here the question is, have you learned in yeshiva or not again? No, if you've learned this in yeshiva, you know the way the Gemara understands these words, the way Rashi, based upon the Gemara, understands these words. But if, I, if you hadn't learned in yeshiva for a moment, if I asked you, what do you think the word lechasot means in Hebrew? Lechasot means to cover, right? So now let's try and translate this. With a covering of souls, each one according to what he can eat, Tachosu should cover himself with a se. That's how you and I would translate it. We have no idea what this means, but if we had to translate the words, right, that's how you would have to translate them. It's not the way the Gemara translates. So the Gemara translates the words that lechasot is the lashon of minyan, that it actually means that you have to count yourself in to a chabura. Right? So you have to count yourself into a group, has to be eaten in a group, and you can only eat it if you're already counted into the group. And the word for that counting is You have to count yourself in. I think Uglas translates this. You have to count yourself in. But it's a strange kind of language. You would imagine that there would be easier ways to express this in biblical Hebrew than to use a language which everywhere else means something else, which means to cover. Anyway, let's continue. So that's halacha number one, a very detailed halacha. Everybody has to count themselves into a chabura. Let's continue. We now understand what animal 
can be taken for Carbon Pesach. So what animal can be taken for Carbon Pesach? We always know the animal's a lamb. But if you listen carefully, it's not so clear that the animal's a lamb. Because what does it say? Set hamim zachar ben shana yelachem mina kvasim mina izim tikachu. So what kind of animals can you have? Lambs or goats. Now, again, there's a language problem here. Let's just start from the beginning of the verse. Set tamim. What's a se? A se is a lamb. Okay, a se is a lamb. Now, the problem is this. If, in fact, you can use either goats or sheep for this, then what words should the Torah probably have used? We have a word for goats and sheep, right? The word for goats and sheep is tzon. The Torah does not use the word tzon. The Torah actually seems, if you read Chutal Shemikra carefully, at least the way I read it, the simple way I would read this, is that something strange is happening. The Torah is redefining, for the purposes of this halacha and this halacha only, the definition of the word seh. Seh no longer means what you think it means, lamb, but seh now means either lamb or goat. Seh means tzon, essentially. Right? Let's just read it. Seh tamim. You should take a seh, whatever a seh is. Zachar ben shana. And what, and now we explain what exactly does that mean. Mina kvasimu mina izim tikacha. You can take it from goats or lambs. So for some reason, the Torah is giving us a tortured redefinition of the word seh. Seh now means something which it never means anywhere else. It always means lamb. Here it means goats or lambs. So why didn't the Torah use tzon then, which is a, a very fine word? I'm just pointing out again, the language here is just strange and problematic. Michsat is strange. Seh, it's almost like a goat is masquerading as a lamb. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a goat dressed up as a lamb over here. That is it, really lambs, and it's all about lambs. But you can sort of have a goat that's kind of like a lamb. It's just a very strange thing. Let's continue. Anyway, so you keep this goat around until the 14th day. We then have this strange law. You have to take the blood. You have to put it on the door. And you have to eat it at night. You have to eat it roasted. Right? Again, very strange laws. A, a unique law that you have to roast it over fire. Matzot amorim yochlu. You have to eat it with matzah. Another unique law. You have to eat it with mororim. Mororim also an unusual word. Never really come up. We don't really have that word much. You know it. It's not unusual to you because you know it as moror. But the only reason you know it as moror is because it appeared here. It's not such a usual word. Matzot amorim. You should eat it with mororim. Again, it almost seems like a made-up word. Um... Again, the the law is, right? Well, let me just translate. How would you translate this? Let's say you were a, a, a you know, a, a basic student, just knew, you've never read this before at all, right? You should not eat it. What does na mean? Raw. Now, you know that because you read Rashi, okay? But if you hadn't read Rashi, what does the word na usually mean? Please, which is like a total non sequitur here, right? Don't eat it, please. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So Rashi translates it and says, no, actually, no means raw. Do you know how Rashi knows that no means raw? Because Rashi says in Arabic, in ancient Arabic, no actually means raw. That's why. So now you have to ask, okay, great. So why is the Torah going to ancient Arabic for a word for raw? I couldn't 
you know, I couldn't come up with a word for raw in Hebrew. Again, tortured language. The word na is strange. Mororim is strange. Mixat and vashot is strange. Se is strange. It's just all strange. Not to mention just the detail, the level of detail of all these laws. As you're going through this, you're thinking, gee, this is really interesting, but God, could you put it in Sefer Vayikra somewhere or something? You know, that would be a wonderful place for it. I'm very interested in this. Give me two psukim. Tell me that you should shef the carbon Pesach, put the blood on the door, and put, put everything else in, in Sefer Vayikra where all the laws of Karbonat are. All right, anyway, so you're going through this. You keep on reading. Basham Vushamabayim, for sure it can't be any water, right? Kim Sli Esh, Roshaw Kravikirbo. For some strange reason it has to be head bunched up over knees. You have to have this animal uh with a head bunched up over knees, roasted on the spit. Lotaturi Menoad Boker, you can't leave anything more until the morning. Kacha tahluotam matnechem chagurim naalechem braglechem alkechem begedchem, you have to eat it with your staff in your hand, your shoes on, ready to go, bachipazon, you have to eat it in a rush. Pesach Hu Pesach Hu It's a Pesach to Hashem. Why is it a Pesach to Hashem? Because we know that uh, the God is going to see the blood. By the way, which is also strange, of course, right? The idea that God has to see the blood. And if you don't do the blood, then he's not going to be able to figure out where the Jews live. I mean, you think the angel of death would have a GPS or something, you know, where Jews are over here, Egyptians are over there, but no. So God needs the blood in order to be able to recognize things for some reason. And when he does, so let's translate this, I'm now in Pasuk Yud Gimel, I'm going to see the blood, translate for me, and I'm going to pass over, right? Okay, now stop for a moment. How do you know that's what it means? How do you know? How do you know means I'm going to pass over you? Because that's what your parents told you. Okay. How did your parents know that's what it meant? Because they were told. How does anyone know that's what it means? Because the box says kosher for Passover. Because the holiday is called Passover. It must, right? It's Pesach. Must mean Passover. But how did anybody know how to translate that word? Normally, how do you know how to translate words? You look where else there are. Look. So you scour through the Chumash looking for Pesach. And guess what? You don't find anything. This is, until now, right, the word Pesach has not appeared. Which means, right, and it never appears to mean this, seemingly. Yes, it's true in Malachim Beit, right, the word appears. But let's say you were living in the times of Yeshua before Malachim Beit was written. Then what would Pesach mean? You would have no idea. So basically, there's only two ways you can know what a word means. One way is you look where else it's written. So we can't do that because it's not written anywhere else. The only other thing you can do is you can infer it from context, which is you do it algebraically. You said, let the word Pesach equal X. It's a variable. Let me figure out what X means by context. So basically, you say, well, what else could it mean? I'm going to see the blood. And I'm going to X over you. Well, it's got to mean Passover. What else is it going to mean? And that's basically the way we figure it out. But let's even say it means Passover. Why did the Torah bother you? Why did the Torah create? It's almost as if God created up, created a new word right here. To, it's almost as if 
the word could have been Urgelschnorp, right? It could have been any word, and then X, right? And then we're going to say, and it's now going to mean Passover, because what else could it mean? I mean, there are plenty of words that you could have used. Medaleg, Mekapetz, there are words for jumping over, which the Torah does not use. So Pesach itself is one of these strange words. If you continue a few psukim later, Moshe tells over all these laws to this Canaan. Chaf Aleph. Pull and take for yourselves tzon. Now, by the way, we have tzon, right, for the first time. Pull and take for yourselves tzon for your families. What word could we have kind of left out over here in Pshat? Mishchu. Right? Let's say it didn't say Mishchu. Let's only, let's say it only said, Take for yourself tzon. Would you have come to me and say, Hey, foreman, how come it doesn't say Mishchu over here? Right? Where's the Mishchu? Where's the pull? You wouldn't have said that. Right? Why does it say in Pshat, pull and take? What does pull add? Mishchu kechulachem. Veshachtu at Pesach, you should shech the Pesach. And then these strange laws, Velachachtem al Gutat Ezov, you have to take this plant, Utzvaltem Badam, you dip it in blood. Blood asher basaf, another strange word. What's a saf? You don't really know what a saf is exactly. It's an unusual word. Now, it does appear later on in Shoftim, right, in the story Pilegash Begiva, where it means threshold. So it could mean threshold. It's not the way the Gemara interprets it. The Gemara interprets it actually to mean a short for safal, right, and to mean like a bucket or a basin. It's a bucket standing on the floor, so it's either the threshold. But again, it's one of these strange words. And then you take the blood from the saf and you put it on the doorpost and you put them as uzot, minadama sher basaf, and the blood is in the saf. And then nobody can go out until the morning when God will be pasach ala pesach. And then just to round out the strangeness of all of this, the next thing that happens is the Jews shech the carbon pesach, the Mitzrim all their Bukharot die, all Buch- our Bukharot are saved, we all triumphantly leave. By Yusuf B'nai Yisrael Maram says Sukkota, we're heading towards Sukkot, and lo and behold, Pasuk Mem Gimel tells you, Zot Chukata Pesach. Whoops, we forgot some laws. Right? Now this is after it's all done. It's totally done. The Jews are in Sukkot now, and now we're going to get a third Parsha, we've had two so far, telling you, almost as an afterthought, after it happened, here are some more laws of the Pesach. No Gentile can eat from it. No stranger. A slave, a servant could eat from it if he's bought. And then we have the laws. You can't break any bones. Um, and these are the laws. Again, Two problems. The whole thing seems like a digression. I just completely lost my story here. Why is it here? And two, the strange and tortured language. So I want to suggest a theory to you, and the theory goes like this. What I want to suggest is, from the standpoint of Pshat, there's really only one possibility. And that possibility is that the laws are not a digression. They're part of the story. It's that the narrator of the Torah, God himself, is now embarking on a new narrative technique. Instead of telling you the story exclusively through narration, part of the story is now going to be told to you through the vehicle of law. Which is to say, that God, so to speak, is telling you 
that right before you get to the climax of the story and you're wondering what's going to happen between these two men, Paro and Moshe, who have sworn not to see to each other, and you're in metach, you're in suspense, trying to figure that out, you think you understand the suspense? You haven't understood anything until you've seen these laws. After you see these laws, then you really understand the suspense. Then you really understand the climax. The laws are part of the story. How is that true? So I want to explore how that might be true with you. So I'm not the first person to wonder about this. About 500 years or so, 500 years or so ago, the Maral talked about this. The Maral and Gvruat Hashem. The Maral has a theory which explains some of this. The Maral's theory, in short, is what the Maral does is tries to say: Can we find a common denominator in the pe- in the laws of the Pesach offering? As we look through these laws, is there any mechanem shutaf? Is there any common denominator that seems to emerge in all these laws? And the Maral came up with one. And in short, the Maral's theory is all of these laws revolve around the idea of oneness. Oneness. Setamim. It has to be perfect. There can't be anything that detracts from the wholeness of the sheep. It has to be Zachar ben Shana. It needs to be one year old. One year old because it's a oneness offering. Etzem lotish brubo. You can't break any bones because if you break the bones, there would be two. You need to keep the bones whole. They need to be one. Everyone needs to come together in a chabura, in a single group, in order to eat them. The reason why you can't boil the meat is because if you ever boil meat, well, you know what happens to meat when you boil it. It fragments. And what happens when you roast it? It comes together. Maral says, symbolically, all of this is about oneness. And the reason why it's about oneness is because the Karban Pesach was a, an, was a symbolic testament to the truth of monotheism. The Ramban says something similar to this without going through all the laws of Karban Pesach. The Ramban points out that one of the gods of the Egyptians was a lamb. They worshipped the lamb. If you shechted the lamb, you were killing their gods. So here you were, you were a ger in polytheistic society, and before you left this polytheistic world, you had to reject it. And you had to say, I put the blood of this offering on the door, I reject polytheism, Mitzrayim is out there, from this door in, this is a Jewish household, we are, we are monotheists, we believe in the one God, we shecht an offering that has all of these symbolic aspects of oneness, we kill the God of the Mitzrayim, Right? And this is what the, the, the carbon is about. This essentially is the Maral's theory as sort of augmented by the Ramban. The Maral does not address all the laws, right? He addressed some of the ones that we talked about. The Maral does not address the language difficulties, but still it's an interesting theory, right? It's an interesting theory. It seems like there is a vein that runs through these laws that has to do with monotheism. The notion that this is a symbolic, um, Assertion of monotheism is an interesting notion and something I want to keep in mind with you. And um, it's something I want to keep in mind with you. Yes. Yeah, I don't mean that. I just mean I don't mean he's following the Maral. I mean he's consistent with the Maral. The Ramban obviously comes first. 
Okay. I want to suggest to you another theory that I believe dovetails with the Mara, with essentially with where the Maral and the Ramban are going, um, and complements what it is that they are saying. At first, the theory is not going to seem as if it complements the Maral theory and the Ramban's theory, but if you bear with me, I think I'll show you that it does. So what I wanted you to do is forget everything I've just told you about the Maral, forget everything i told you about the Ramban. We're going to come back and look at the Karban Pesach again. Um, but in order to do so, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey first. I want to take you back into Sefer Breshit for a moment. Um... Let me see where this is. Um, come with me into Breshid Lamadala for a moment. And I'm just looking. I didn't actually mark where it is. But if you can find for a moment. Uh, here it is. It's Pasach Chafhei. It's actually in Perak Laman. Lamed Chafhei. So this theory, actually, the beginning of this theory, or most of it, actually, is not my own. This is Rav Soloveitchik's theory. Um, not about Karban Pesach, but about this particular piece, which you'll see in a moment. Vahi kasher yalda rachelet yosef. Vayomer Yaakov Lavan Shalcheni Ve'elchel Mokom Yulartzi. Rav Salvechik Zatzal had a question on the above verse. That's the following. Vayhi Kasher Yalda Rachelat Yosef. And it happened when Rachel gave birth to Yosef that Yaakov said to Lavan, Shalcheni Ve'elchel Mokom Yulartzi. Send me out and I want to go back. So here's a man who has spent years laboring day after day in the fields of Lavan. And the Torah intriguingly tells you that when Rachel gave birth to Yosef, it happened when Rachel gave birth to Yosef, that Yaakov decided it was time to leave. And the natural question is, why? It sounds like there was something about the birth of Yosef that propelled Yaakov's decision to go. It was time to go. What was it about the birth of Yosef that made Yaakov so confident that it was time for him to leave? Okay. What's that? Versus Esav? Could be. But still, how does he know that he has... Maybe it's no shall Esav. Possible. So here is Rav Soloveitchik's theory. His theory is the following. Here's a little prefatory for the theory, just for a moment. When the brothers of Yosef stripped Yosef of his coat before they threw him in the pit, Rashi points out that the verse mentioned, the verse includes a redundancy. It mentions it twice. They stripped him of his coat, of the special coat that was on him. Rashi is bothered by the redundancy and quotes a medrash to explain it. The medrash says, when they stripped him of his coat, that was his regular, his regular cloak that all the brothers had. 
right? Every brother had a cloak, and he had a cloak too. At Ketonet HaPasim Asher Alav, when it says they stripped him of his coat, that was his special coat. The language of Rashi is, Zeh Shehosifu Lo Aviv Al Echav. This was the coat that was added for Yosef upon all the other brothers. Now let me ask you a question. Here you have the worst moment in all of Breshit. It's all falling apart. And the only thing Rashi can bother telling you about is exactly how many pieces of clothing Yosef lost as he went into the pit. I mean, do you care? Why do we care if Yosef had his undershirt on or not as he was being thrown into the pit? Why does Rashi feel this is so important for us to know? But if you listen carefully to Rashi's words, you kind of have the answer. What halacha later on in the Torah does this sort of kind of remind you of? Everybody had one coat, all the, all the brothers. But Yosef had a special coat, a coat that was added on. All the other brothers had one coat, but Yosef had two coats. Why might Yosef have two coats? It sure sounds a lot like Pishnayim. It sounds like the second portion that would be given to a Bechor. That's what it sounds... And when the brothers are stripping him of that coat, what are they really saying? You don't have a right to be called that way. There's a lot of evidence to support this. Time will not allow me to get into this in detail, but I'm just going to do this very, very quickly with you. If you even go to the Parsha of Bechor in Sefer Dvarim, listen to the words. When a man will have two wives, one that he loves, and one that he hates. So as I even say that to you, you're smiling, you're saying, that's not such a nice thing to say. I mean, like, he's married to a wife that he hates, so maybe he doesn't love her so much, but he hates her. Like, why is he married to her when he hates her, right? But now if you think, I said to you, but one second, is there a time in the Torah that you remember any particular woman being known as a snua? And of course the answer is yes. Who's that? It's Leah. The only person ever called a snua in the Torah is actually Leah. So you've got to wonder, when the Torah says, when a man has two wives and one of them has to be, happens to be the snua, whether we're talking about Leah. Now, if we are talking about a Leah, then who would the Yahuvah be? It's got to be Rachel. And who would the man be? The man has got to be Yaakov. So, the oldest child, so who's that going to be? The oldest child is going to be from the Sniya, which actually is going to be Ruven. Okay. When you apportion your estate to all these children, you shall not make the Bechor the Ben Auva. Who's that going to be? Yosef, the oldest child of Rachel, rather Ruvain has to be the Bechor to give him Pishnaim, and everything that belongs to him. Kihu Reshito no. Interesting words, Kihu Reshito no, wouldn't you say? Where do the words Reshito no appear elsewhere in the Torah? Speaking of, in the Bracha, the Bracha of whose? Ruvain. Ruvain is known as Reshit Ono. It really sounds like the Torah is telling you the story of Yaakov and telling you that Ruvain's the Bechor, right? That you can't do that to make Yosef. But it sounds like that's what Yaakov was doing, was trying to make Yosef the Bechor. And by the way, if you pay attention to the words, there's two kind of strange words there. Yakir, instead of but no, Yakir, 
the Gemara Darshan's those words, not strange words, and all that's found to him, and all of his estate. So think about those words, Yakir and Yematselo, Yakir and Yematselo. And now think about Yaakov, Yosef, and Ruvain. Yakir and Yematselo, anybody? When else do we have Yakir and Yematselo? Zot Matsanu, the brothers say, as they hold the coat of Yosef. Hakerna, recognize, please. Haktonet bin Himlo. And you wonder if what they're really saying is just borrow the language from Dvarim, right? In Dvarim, what is Zot, what is, what is, Yimatselo uh, mean, right? That which is found to him is the estate. So it's like when the brothers are saying Zot Matsanu when they're holding the coat, they're saying, Dad, this is your stuff. This is your estate. Hakerna, recognize, please. Hakerna, borrowed from Devarim. Yakir, Yakir is recognize who your real Bukhar is. It's almost as if the brothers are challenging Yaakov. They can't say it out loud, so they say it surreptitiously, holding the coat, but there's a double meaning, and the double meaning is Right? This is your stuff. Recognize who your real Bukhar is. Haktonet bin Chahimlo? Is it Yosef's coat? Or maybe not. Maybe it's Ruben's. Right? So, you know, you really have to wonder. But it sounds like Yaakov was treating Yosef as the Bukhar. The Torah itself sounds like that. So Rosalvechik's theory is this. His theory is that the reason why Yaakov decided to leave the house of Lavan with the birth of Yosef, was because Yaakov knew how to do math. Everyone was aware, at the time of the Avot, of a promise that had been given to Avram, the promise of slavery. But no one knew exactly what it meant. Ger yezarach haberot lolahem va'avodum that promise ended with these words, the fourth generation will return here. It's a very ambiguous, strange prophecy. Even the way it unfolded, it wasn't 400 years. You have to use your thumbs to figure out how it's actually 400 years. It was 210 years. It was a long time. But one of the problems is that there's a tension between 400 years and Dorivi. You know, 400 years is a long time. Dorivi Yashuvahena seems to be a short amount of time. Which is it? How would it happen? No one really knew. Along comes Yaakov. Yaakov says, Ger yezarachaberet lo lahem. Well, there will come a time when your children will be strangers in a land not their own. He looks at himself in the house of love and he says, Oh no, I'm a stranger. Im Lavan Garti, even uses the language of Ger to describe his time in Lavan's house. So I'm a stranger in a land not my own. I don't belong here. I really should be in Knan. They're enslaved there. So I look at myself and I don't know, it kind of looks like slavery. You know, I didn't ask to, to work like this. And you look at Lovan's de- his defense to Lovan, he really portrays his experience as an experience of slavery. The Inuotam. I've been oppressed, right? Arba Meotshana. All right, it hasn't been 400 years, but it's been a long time, right? And it, it, it never was 400 years. By the way, how long was it? It was 20 years. When did he leave? At the beginning of the 21st year. Isn't it interesting? When did the Jews leave Mitzrayim? 210 years. A multiple of 10. It's just kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't know that, but he's saying, you know, it was a long time. 
And then the door of Yeshua and Hena. The fourth generation is going to return you. With a lot of wealth. What does Yaakov make sure to leave with? A lot of wealth. He has this whole trick where he's going to get himself a lot of wealth. The fourth generation is going to return here. Well, Avram would be generation number one. Yitzchak would be generation number two. Me, Yaakov, would be generation number three. And Yosef's going to be generation number four. Now you're all going to say, what do you mean Yosef's generation number four? I had all these children before now, but not if he's treating Yosef like his firstborn. It's like, this is my first real child. I was never supposed to marry the other woman. Rachel was the woman I was always supposed to marry. And now I've had the child from my real wife, Rachel. And, and the, he's my firstborn. And now it's time for me to leave. By the way, even listen to the end of the prophecy. Kilo shalem dor avon haemori ad God says. The fourth generation will return here because the sin of the, of the, of the Amorites is not sufficiently great until then. Haemori. What's the only other time, the next time the word Amori appears in Chumash? That's it. It's when Yaakov gives Yosef Shechem Echad Pishnayim, right? Of Shechem, Asher Lakachti, Becharbiu Bekashti, Miyad Ha Emori. It's almost like he's thinking, those are the guys. Shechem, I, I came back, I conquered Shechem, I'm going into the land, right? And my job is to build, right? It's happening through me. The whole prophecy is happening through me. Now, it's very easy for us to say, sitting here, sitting pretty 3,000 years later, to say, oh, poor Yaakov, very naive, you know? He thought he had it all figured out, but you can never figure out the ways of Hashem. And really, we know the truth. It wasn't through Yaakov. It never was supposed to be through Yaakov. It was actually supposed to be through us. The 400 years of slavery was something else, Mitzrayim. But how could Yaakov have known? But are you so sure? Are you so sure? Let's listen to the way the Torah itself portrays how Yaakov left the house of Lavan. Mm-hmm. Reshid Listen to these words. And it was told to Lavan on the third day that Yaakov had left. Now let's express it algebraically. Where else do we have this formula in Tanakh? Vayugad le'ex ki barach y. It's the exact same words in Shmot. Do you understand what? Vayugad le'melach mitzrayim ki barach ha'am. And it was, it's exactly the same words. The Torah is doing this. You have to ask yourself, whoa, now why is that? By the way, it's, it's not just those words. First of all, biyom ha'shlishi doesn't mention yom ha'shlishi with paro, but we do know one thing. How long were the Jews supposed to go for? Three days. So when would it be told to him that the Jews have fled? When they didn't come back after the third day. Very strange. Let's keep on reading. And he took his brothers with him. What does that remind you of in Shemot? 
It's exactly the same language in Shemot. Vayirdu from Yitzrayim. He takes his chariots and Vayirdu Vakarab. And then what's the next words? He goes and and then um, and then Vayasegot. Vayaseg Lavan es Yaakov. Lavan catches up with them. Shemot. What does this remind you of? Vayasegotam. All of these verbs, one after another, they're all the same. Kind of makes you wonder. What are you wondering? You're saying to yourself, maybe the maybe there was something to this. The Torah itself was telling you that Yaakov wasn't wrong. Now, what do you mean Yaakov wasn't wrong? It sounds almost like he could have been right. It could have been the fulfillment of Brit by Nebuchadnezzar. Just in the end, it wasn't. Something happened. Something happened to change the course of history. The Brit Ben Abtarim could have been fulfilled this way. Yaakov was going home. He was going home, as Chazal say. Right? Vayeshev, listen to these words. Vayeshev Yaakov, Be'eretz Mugurei Aviv, Be'eretz Kanan. What do those words tell you? If I'm Yaakov, what do those words mean to me? Vayeshev Yaakov, I've settled. Where? In the land that all of my fathers were only Gerim. But now it's up to me. I finally, I've fulfilled the dream. I've settled the land. I've done what I'm supposed to be. God himself said, Hashivoticha ladamazot. I'm going to bring you back. Hashivoticha, the play on that word is Vayeshev Yaakov. It's happened. I'm at the end of my life. My job is just to imam and the shvatim and to go and to have children and to con- and, and I'm in the land. And Chazal tell it to you. Bikesh Yaakov, Leishev Veshava. He thought it was all over. Kafatzalav Rogzel Shal Yosef. Very fascinating. Let's come back to that Chazal in a moment. Okay. If I've shown you that Yaakov's experience in the house of Lavan sure reminds you a lot of the Jewish experience in the house of Paro, and I've shown you that the way Yaakov leaves the house of Lavan sure reminds you a lot of the way the Jews leave the house of Paro, then inquiring minds want to know one last thing. Is the way we got into Lavan's household similar to the way we got into Paro's household? That would complete the picture, right? Is the way we got into each household the same? Our experience in each household was the same. How we left was the same. What about how we got there? Let's talk about that for a minute. So how did we get to the house of Lavan? Why did Rivka send him? He had to flee. He had to flee an enraged brother. Now, why did he have to flee an enraged brother? Because he deceived his brother and he deceived his father. Now, how did he deceive his father and how did he deceive his brother? And what did he deceive them over? So he deceived them over the Bechorah. Right? He deceived them over... Who was going to be the Bukhar? Now, by the way, who was the Bukhar? Was it Yaakov or Esav? It kind of depends who you ask. Esav was born first, and if you ask Esav, he would surely tell you he's the Bukhar. But what would Yaakov tell you? He sold it to me fair and square. What would Esav tell you? That was a sale? When we were kids playing around with the porridge? Like, you think that counts? What, you can sell being born first? It's not biology? 
right? Yeah, I mean, how do you even sell something like that? Yaakov says, no, it's, you know, it's according to some, it's a Dover Shalabololam, but you can still be selling it. You know, it, it's really a dispute. Yaakov really thought that from his perspective, it was sold. Asaph didn't really think that way. So a child deceives a parent about a murky Bechor. Not just about a murky Bechor, about the whereabouts of a murky Bechor. Because what really is Yaakov saying to Yitzchak when he comes to him in his coat, the coats of Esav? What is the lie? The lie is, where is Esav? Right here. Where is Esav really? Esav is gone. But the lie is, Esav is right here. So, there is a child deceiving a parent about a murky Bechor, saying the person that you think of the Bechor is really right here, when really that person is gone. And through what? How do they deceive them? They deceive them by taking goats, right? Shechting the goats, the izim, preparing the food and bringing it to father, wearing the coats of Esav. Okay, so then... A child deceiving a father about the whereabouts of someone that the child thinks is a Bechorah using goats and coats as the device. Now, where else in the Torah have you heard something like that? Besides Yaakov and Esav. Sure sounds a lot like Yosef and his brothers. When the brothers, what did they do? It's goats and coats part two, right? The brothers shecht a goat, they put the blood on the coat. They come before father. The language, by the way, is the same, right? Vayaviu el avihem, vayavo el aviv. It's exactly the same. All the language is the same, by the way. Zot matsanu, right? Zot matsanu hakerna. Where do you have that in the story of Yaakov and Esav? Zot matsanu. Yitzchak. Maza miharta limtsobani. How'd you get back so fast, my son? Velo hikiruhu, and he didn't recognize him. That in the next generation becomes zot matsanu hakerna. All the language is the same. It's all the same. Here are brothers coming, deceiving their father about a murky bechor. Who's the bechor? It kind of depends who you ask. Yosef, from Yaakov's perspective, is the bechor, not from the children of Leah's perspective. From the children of Leah's perspective, it's like what? We're chopped liver, like no one was born until him. Do you understand? Right? So there's a murky Bechor. Father thinks someone is the Bechor. Children think someone else is the Bechor. And by bringing this coat with the goat blood, what are they saying? They're saying the inverse of what Yaakov had said to Yitzchak. Yaakov had said, Esav's here, but really he's gone with the coat. What are the brothers saying with the coat? They're saying Yosef is gone, but he's really here, i.e. he's really alive. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the reverse. And what are they really saying? They're really saying, who's your real Bukhar? Like we said, the double entendre, right? Dad, recognize who your real Bukhar is. Whose coat does this belong to? Which is essentially the same thing that Yaakov was saying to Yitzchak. Neither one could say it out loud because they were afraid that father would say no. So instead, they said it surreptitiously. But it's happening again. And that's how we got into Lavan's house. We got into Lavan's house through Goats and Coats Part 1. We got into the house of Paro 
through Goats and Coats Part 2. And now you understand why it had to happen again. Why wasn't one time enough? Everything that Yaakov did, it sounded like the Brit Ben Amtarim was being fulfilled. Just go to Chazal. What did Chazal tell you? At the end of his life, Yeshev Yaakov, he was settling down. It was ready. He had gone through everything. Right? And what did Chazal tell you? Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Bashalva. He was going to sit there and everything was going to be fine, except what happened? Kafatzalav Rogzal Shal Yosef. Yosef happened. Where everything that happened in the last generation, the deception about father of Bechor, caused the disaster of the descent into Lavan's household for 20 years, leaving the 21st year. Now it happened again. Got to go through the whole thing one more time. But this time, it's not going to be 21 years. It's going to be 210 years. This time, it's not just going to be one person enslaved. It's going to be a whole generation of people enslaved. It's going to happen for real this time. If the way we got down to Mitzrayim and the way we got to the mini Mitzrayim of Lavan's household was through Goats and Coats 1 and Goats and Coats 2, don't you think that in order to leave Mitzrayim in some way, you would have to relate to goats and coats. And now you begin to see the connection. Isn't it interesting that the last plague where we all go free just happens to be Makat Bechorot of all things? What got us into such trouble back in Sefer Breshit? All this deception about the Bechor. Now if you don't do it right this time, you're all going to die. So you better get it right. And the Torah tells you exactly how to do it right. Let's read through Carbon Pesach one more time and see if it reminds us of anything in Goats and Coats 1 and in Goats and Coats 2. Everyone takes their lamb, and if there's not enough in the household to consume the lamb, then everyone should get together. We said that strange language, right? The covering of souls. So it actually means to count yourself into a chabura. But listen carefully, right? The halacha means you must count yourself into a chabura. But the pshat seems to be saying, you cover your souls with this lamb. Every person covers himself with the set. Now, go back to Goats and Coats 1 or Goats and Coats 2. Was there any covering of souls in those stories, any covering at all. Yes, but the language wasn't covering there. That's true. Where is the actual language of covering lechasot actually used in Goats and Coats 1 or Goats and Coats 2? It's used by Yehuda. Ma betza kinaro getachinu v'chisinu et damo. What do we gain by killing our brother and covering his blood? Now, what is blood in the Torah? Blood is, oh, right? Blood is Adamhu Hanefesh. Blood is Nefesh. How do you know blood is a Nefesh? Because somebody else in the story of Goats and Coats tells you that Dam is Nefesh. Do you know who that person is? Ruvain. Ruvain begins by saying, Lo nakenu Nefesh. We're not going to kill anyone. And the next thing he words, words he says is, Al Tishbuchu Dam. 
we're not going to kill any blood. If you put Ruvain's words and Yehuda's words together, dam equals nefesh, ma betza right? We're not going to cover the dam nefesh. The Torah tells you, well, now you got to cover it, right? This lamb is going to be your covering. You thought you were going to cover the blood of your brother. You're going to cover yourselves with this offering. By the way, it's a little deeper than that. How were they going to cover the blood? Let's say they went through with the plan. Let's say they killed him like they originally planned. We covered his blood. By what artifice would they have covered the blood? It would have been through their communal decision never to breathe a word. We're one group and no one leaves the group. Remember Chazal? They made a cherem, a cherem that was so severe that even God was included, even Yitzchak Avinu was included. No one leaves the group. So now, what becomes the covering over here? The covering is count yourself into a group. This is groups, right? This is all about groups. If you're not in the group, you don't get to be a part of it. If you used groups, you considered using groups to cover blood, you're going to use groups one more time to cover blood. Setamim, there's going to be a says, but strangely, there's going to be a sheep, but a goat can masquerade as the sheep. Why do you think a goat could masquerade as a sheep? Because we're talking about goats and coats. Of course, goats have to be in goats and coats. Did goats ever masquerade as a sheep? When did goats masquerade as a sheep? Think about it. When they shechted the goat, what did they put the blood on? On the coat. What was the coat, according to Rashi? According to Chazal in Masechet Shabbat. Right? It was clay melat. It was fine wool. Who wears wool? A sheep. When Yosef's coming towards them, what does he look like in his beautiful coat? This beautiful, pristine sheep. And they took goat blood and pretended it was Yosef blood. So there's goats masquerading as sheeps, as sheep. So the Torah tells you, one more time, and you can have goats pretending to be sheeps over here. You can have a seh, and you can have izim. And then you have to take the blood, we'll put it on the doorpost, we'll get back to that in a moment. Vachluot abasar balayla is at sliesh. You have to eat it sliesh, we'll come back to that in a moment. Umatzot amarim you have to eat it with bread. Why do you think you have to eat it with bread, of all things? Goats and coats, one, they served him bread, even though he didn't ask for him. Goats and coats, two, what do the brothers do? Everyone said that, so you're going to have to eat bread, too. You're going to sit down. It's Pesach. You can't eat bread. What are you going to have to eat? You're going to have to eat matzah. But you're going to sit down and there have your matzah. Al merorim, you should eat it with merorim. Merorim, bitterness. Any bitterness in goats and coats, one? Goats and coats, one. Any bitterness? Yaakov and Esav. Esav comes home. He hears the deception. What does he do? He lets out at Sa'aka Gdolau Mara. He lets out a great and bitter cry. Remember that bitterness. Any bitterness in goats and coats too? You don't see it in the actual story. You see it in Parshat Vayichi, in the Brachot. Vayistamuhu Vayimoraruhu Vayimoraruhu. They embittered him, the brothers through how they acted. And now, Amatzot Umrorim Yochluhu, eat it with remembrance of the bitterness. You for sure shall eat it raw, but what does na also mean? Please. Don't eat it with please. Well, there's any pleases in Goats and Coats 1 or Goats and Coats 2? Absolutely. Hakerna, right? Please recognize. Kumna, achla mitzedi in Goats and Coats 1. 
So don't eat it na. And it would for sure be a no-no to have any water, to have anything to do with this. Why can't we have any water? No water? There's got to be no water. It's like Yosef dangling in the oven, right? Without any water. It's like right? All bunched up together. We'll get back to that in a moment. It should entirely disappear by the morning because what happened to Yosef? The brothers came back to the pit. Reuven came back to the pit. And what happened? Yosef was gone, entirely gone. So you got to make this entirely gone too. And... You have to take everything. You have to be ready to go. Why? Because in Goats and Coats 1, Goats and Coats 2, you always were running. Running into Galut. Running into exile. Now you're going to replay it. But you're going to be running into freedom. You're going to be running the other way. Eat it b'chipazon. Pesach Hashem. You should eat it in a rush. Pesach, we'll come back to that. Pesach, we'll come back to that also. Mishchu ukechulachem, tzon lemishpachotechem. Mishchu, mishchu, mem shin chaf vav. Do you know there's only one other mem shin chaf vav in the entire Chamishay Chumshay Torah other than mishchu ukechulachem tzon, taking yourselves this Korban Pesach? Do you know what the only other mem shin chaf vav is? Vayimshechu vayalu at Yosef minabor, when they pulled Yosef out of the pit. Right? And now listen to the double meaning. Everything in Parsha number one that we've just read is all about replaying the story. Don't forget the story. Everything in Parsha number two, which you're about to read, is about redeeming the story. You're going to do it a little bit differently this time. You know how you're going to do it? Last time, you pulled him out and sold him as a slave. What are you going to do this time? Mishchu u'kechu lachem Go take this little defenseless sheep into your families. What is it telling you to do? You don't sell Yosef. You bring him back. You take him out of the pit. You bring him back into your family. They shechted the goat. Anyone? They took the blood, they took the coat, and what did they do? It's literally what they did. They dipped it in blood. Which blood? Blood asher basaf. Oh, that's a strange word, isn't it? What does saf remind you of? What kind of blood? Yosef blood. Fake Yosef blood. Right? In this fake Yosef blood on the threshold. And then you should put it there. Now, there are a number of laws that I haven't addressed yet, and I have five minutes left until this is over. The laws which I haven't addressed yet are the following. The fact that nobody can go out of their house until the morning. The fact that the, uh, the carbon Pesach is called Pesach and that God is going to pass over you. But there's this very strange word for Passover. The fact that Everyone has to paint the doorpost, all three sides of the door, with blood. The fact that the animal is bunched up, Rosho al Valkirbo, right, bunched up together like that. Let's put all four of those ideas together and see what you get. Listen carefully. The door. There has to be blood on both mezuzot. There has to be blood on the mashkov. And there's blood on the saf, which is at the floor. So that means where is the blood? Everywhere. It's a bloody door. The blood is everywhere. Now, no one can go out until the morning. And 
How do you eat it? You eat the animal when it's rosho al kraval kirbo, with its head over its knees, bunched up on the spit. The head over knees. If you got down on the floor and you lie down, head over knees, it's the fetal position. It's the fetal position. And no one can go on. Everyone's waiting all night long. No one can go out. And there's this bloody door. And what's, and then you're going to rush out the chipazon in the morning. It's birth. What is it going to happen? Bani Bechori Yisrael, my firstborn child is Israel, God had said. And if you don't let him go, I will kill your firstborn. The only firstborn I'll save is my firstborn. When did we become God's firstborn? Right here. When we were born. It's our national birth. And that's what is there. You start counting from this month. Because happy birthday. This is when you're born. You are going to become the Bukhor. What does it mean? How do you become the Bukhor? How do you become the Bukhor? Upasachti alechem. Pass. And by the way, in goats and coats. Pass anyone? Goats and coats too? The Ketonet Pasim. The Ketonet Pasim was what Yaakov father gave to Yosef to signify that he was the Bukhor. God says, I am going to signify that you are the Bukhor. I will stripe you. I will say you are my Bukhor when I pass over you. That's what it means. And I want to conclude with this idea. What does it mean to be Bukhor? On one level, it means what the Maral says. You have to commit yourself. You have to do something. What is a Bukhor? A Bukhor is a firstborn. A firstborn is a kind of child leader. But why do there need to be child leaders? Why is it enough to be a parent leader? I'm a parent. Why can't I? What do I need a Bukhor for? I'm the leader of my family. Why do I have to have a Bukhor? The answer is because a Bukhor can do something a parent can't do. There's something called a generation gap. Every child wants to emulate their parent. But how do I emulate my parent? I don't know how to emulate my parent. How am I supposed to do that? My parent goes to board meetings. My parent drives a car. I'm six years old. I can't go to board meetings. I can't drive a car. How do I emulate them? The answer is, that's what a Bukhor can do. A Bukhor can take the values of the parent, translate them into the world of the child and play, and say, this is what it means to live the parent's values in our world. Now follow me. God says, I could use a Bukhor. Because if there's a generation gap problem with human beings, all the more so with God. Everybody wants to do the will of God, but what does that mean? You can't touch him, you can't feel him. What does it mean to do the will of God? God says, I need a child, I need a nation who can model this in the world and say, this is what it looks like. Follow these laws, do it this way. This is what it means to be a model nation. When did we become God's Bukhor? When we started doing it. When we took the God of the Egyptians and committed ourselves and said, this is what it means to be a monotheist. That's how we started. But God says that's not good enough. A Bukhor is not just about your commitment to your parent. Because you can still be a destructive Bukhor. What does a parent want more than anything? A, that the child's committed to me. But what if the child's not committed to his brothers? What if the child causes rancor and anger in the family? What if a child so interested in doing my will and being my Bukhor that they're lie, cheat, and steal brothers? I don't want that. 
The whole point of being a parent, the whole point of a Bechor, is that I can facilitate my love and I can bring my values to all the children. If you do that, you destroy the connection between parents and children. There's another part of being Bechor. And it is being a good brother. So redo goats and coats. Do it one more time. Stand up. Don't deceive your father. Don't be too afraid to say, bless me. Come to me, put the blood on the door and scream out, I want to be your Bechor. And, and I will accept that. And I will accept that. And redo Yosef. Symbolically, commit yourself. Commit yourself to doing what you can for Yosef. Etzem lotishbrubo. You kind of wonder what that means. What do the Jews still have to do? Take out Yosef's bones. Be very careful with Yosef's bones when you take them out. Right? <coughs> There is, and I'll, I'll leave you with 30 seconds with this idea. What's the difference between a good principal and a bad principal in school? <clears throat> I had a fellow call me. He said, my child is very bright. He has 130 IQ. He's terrific, but he's a tough kid to contain. He got a letter from his school, and the letter said, we're not sure if there's a place for you in yeshiva next year. The child said, if you're not sure if there's a place for me in yeshiva next year, I don't want to go back. And he didn't. And he enrolled in another school, another private school that wasn't a yeshiva. And the parent called up the Rebbe, the, the principal, and said, what did you do? The principal said, well, I never expected that to happen. I just said, we're not sure if there's a place for you. The father said, do you know what my son's ambition is? My son's ambition is to be a multimillionaire to go to graduate school and to get an MBA and make lots of money. And he was this close to dedicating a wing in your yeshiva <laughs> 20 years from now. But that's not going to happen now. You turned away this child. There's another model for a principal, my principal, Rabbi Tendler, in Ner Yisrael, I remember. Ner Yisrael was interesting. It was an elite kind of yeshiva. It could have been very selective. But it always managed to bring in these kids that were impossible to control. I mean, I knew them. And by the way, my contemporaries now know them, but they don't know them as kids impossible to control. They know them as heads of yeshivas in Israel. You send your kids to these schools. I can name you who the Russia yeshiva are, the ones who threw other kids through plate glass windows in the Nair Yisrael dorms. And do you know why they're not that way anymore? Because Rabbi Tendler ignored everyone else but these kids. He sat down. He made a seder with each and every one of them. He said, you're on my team. I'm giving you jobs. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to take that which it is that you struggle with, and I'm going to bring that into... I'm going to make you work on my team, and I'm going to take all of that energy and channel that in a powerful way. And it's always the tough kids that turn out to have the most potential in them. And a good principal recognizes that and harnesses that. God says, look at you guys. Bukhar always gets you into so much trouble. You just want to be first. You're willing to lie, cheat, and steal just to be first. You know what? I have a job for you. I could use a Bukhar. It's a tough job. Thousands of years of anti-Semitism. Creating a model society and sticking to it and showing the world what it means to live that kind of model society. You up to it? If you are, stand up for my values and redo all the deception and scream out to the world and to me that I am your Bechor 
no deception, be there for your brothers, be there for me, and you can be my Bukhar. Thank you very much. <laughs>